Why read the wealth of nations? Today on The Curious Task, I speak with Maria Pia Paganelli. Welcome to The Curious Task from the Institute for Liberal Studies, where we explore economics, politics, philosophy, and other ideas from a classical liberal perspective. I'm Alex Aragona, your host, and today I'm speaking with Maria Pia Paganelli. Maria is Associate Professor of Economics at Trinity University and works in the history of economic thought, specializing in the 18th century with a focus on Adam Smith, David Hume, monetary theories, and the Scottish Enlightenment. She analyzes how self-interest interacts with other motivational drives, with systematic biases, and with the surrounding institutional environment, and also explores the links between the Scottish Enlightenment and the results from behavioral economics, evolutionary biology, and neuroeconomics. Maria regularly publishes in History of Political Economy, the Journal of the History of Economic Thought, and History of Economic Ideas. She also wrote the Rutledge Guidebook of Smith's Wealth of Nations. Maria, welcome to The Curious Task. Thank you so much for our invitation to be here. It's a pleasure. And it's great to have you on. So Maria, we base each of our episodes on a question and go wherever the conversation and answers take us. Our question today is, why read The Wealth of Nations? And in your essay, 240 Years of the Wealth of Nations, you, you frame this question further by asking, why should anyone bother reading this book that's two centuries old anyway, over two centuries old, actually? Um, and just to jump in first, I'd like to start with a framework of understanding your essay actually introduces the idea that it's important for better or worse to understand the backdrop of the time Smith was writing in to understand his work. So before we get into all the great stuff in the Wealth of Nations and, and all that, I think this is a very key point. Why, why do you think it's, let's say we have a new reader to the, the Wealth of Nations, why do you think it's important for them to first remember that this was indeed written in 1776, or at least published in 1776? Can you tell us a bit about the time and what was going on and, and the framework Adam Smith was in when he was writing this inquiry? So, as you mentioned, The Wealth of Nation was written in 1776 in Scotland, um, or it was published in Scotland. And Scotland in uh, the 18th century was a very peculiar place, um, mostly because um, it was considered uh, a sort of periphery of the cultural world, cultural world centers being uh, France or London, but not Scotland. Scotland was the back, uh, the, the back bar of uh, our culture. But nevertheless, that was not actually true uh, because in part maybe because of the being in the periphery, it was Scotland was able to free itself or not to be constrained by uh, previous prejudice or institutions that limited the development of knowledge. And so a combination of that with uh, the union with England that allowed Scotland to open its ports and its economy to the British Empire, um, Scotland saw uh, an incredible economic growth um, in the 18th century. Uh, and it was really incredible because now um, it became one of the, the, the ports, the Glasgow became one of the most important ports in the British Empire in the commerce with the colonies, with the, with the, uh, with the Atlantic trade. 
And, uh, and so the economic growth was impressive. Uh, it, uh, it was a booming economy at the time. And, and not having a lot of previous constraint, the cultural aspect of it also started to boom. And so Smith wrote in a time in which basically every aspect of knowledge and culture was booming. Um, from the knowledge of the skies, so from astronomy to botany, the knowledge of plants, um, everything was under investigation, everything was uh, under questioning, and religion was questioned, uh, human beings were questioned, uh, human nature was questioned, just like the stars were questioned. Um, and the way, the approach that most Scots had at the time was uh, an approach based on curiosity and inquiry. So not based on uh, the given word, in a sense. So do not rely, they did not rely, they tended not to rely on um, what was told to them before, but they wanted to to test it, to, they wanted to experience it, they wanted to see it with their own eyes. This did not imply necessarily um, a disconnection with uh, uh, a religious aspect, for example, uh, that a lot of previous explanations of, of the word was, were given by religion. Um, some people um, disconnected themselves from religion, but others didn't, um, and they just confirmed what uh, religious belief uh, were um, that they were told in their experience, but they wanted to experience it first. They wanted to to test it first, and uh, so that that is part of the environment in which Smith in, uh, lived, and the interactions that he had uh, were with. Um, all sort of people of all sort of backgrounds. So if you think of his executors, um, uh, one of them was basically the founder of geology. Um, so he interacted with people in the physical, what today we call the physical sciences, the, in the natural sciences, human sciences, with poetry, um, with literature, with theater, uh, again, astronomy, uh, what, um, what from uh, the one who developed the uh, steam engine, worked with him uh, at the University of Glasgow. So all people from all sorts of uh, intellectual background uh, were present and interacted with each other, um, which also gave stimulus to the development of knowledge. Because it was not, um, it, it was bringing in knowledge, information, and curiosity from every possible aspects um, of the world. So that's that's the context in which uh, in which Smith wrote. I think I think that's a great answer. It's a great overview. So it sounds like you you definitely think it's important to understand there was a certain economic and political climate at the time, but also something to be said about the the the, the changing intellectual climate at the time as well. Correct. That's very interesting. And, and I have a couple of follow-up comments and questions about the wealth of nations itself. But now that you provide the backdrop of the time for a little bit there, 
Um, our listeners are familiar with Adam Smith to, to varying degrees, but is there anything you'd like to highlight about Smith himself to provide more context for a discussion about, you know, now we've established mm-hmm. the context he was in. So Smith himself, can you, can you talk a bit about what you think is important to keep in mind about him when we think of the wealth of nations? So he um, he was born in uh, in a small town um, not far from Edinburgh in uh, in Scotland. Uh, went to the local parish schools, which um, proved to be extremely good at the time. Um, and the kind of educational system that he received, or that at least that he was exposed to uh, as, a, as a boy, um, he praised later on in the West of Nations as the most effective uh, educational system uh, and contrasted it with uh, other educational systems like the one in England uh, or on the continent. He went to the University of Glasgow as a student, um, and uh, he uh, he did very well. And then he went to um, Oxford uh, to continue his studies in theory to become uh, part of the church, which was a common thing at the time. Um, he hated his time in Oxford. Um, and again, that um, bad experience that he had was reflected later on also in the West of Nations. So the, the description of the universities, uh, the endowed university, as, uh, as I were called at the time, in, uh, in England are quite uh, brutal in the West of Nations. Um, and the reason why he hated it is because he thought that professors had no incentives to teach. Um, and, uh, and so he basically studied on his own, uh, on his own time. Um, and he, so he took advantage at least of the great libraries that were present at Oxford. Um, so he had a very strong knowledge of, of Latin, uh, of the classics. Um, he, he knew French uh, in Oxford. Allegedly, he started to read David Hume, uh, which was another philosopher of, uh, of the Scottish Enlightenment, um, but considered um, an infidel because his views uh, about uh, about God were not consistent with uh, the official view of the Kirk of the Church of Scotland. Um, after that, he went back to Scotland. Um, he did not... Or, um, joined the church, of course, he asked for an exemption, um, and he went back to Scotland, and he started to lecture uh, as uh, offering public lectures in Edinburgh, and those lectures were actually lectures on rhetorics. Um, so basically, he was teaching English <laughs> to, uh, to the Scots, and, um, and they were extremely successful. Um, so again, those are, are public lectures, they're open to the public, but uh, they were extremely successful. From there, um, he um, started to work at the University of Glasgow. Um, he had a chair in logic, and he taught um, moral philosophy. And uh, another subject that he taught was jurisprudence, which is basically law. Um, he, of course, did not teach economics because economics didn't exist yet at the time. But from the notes 
of his students that uh, were recovered uh, in the 20th century, we know that uh, a lot of his thinking of economics was already present in, uh, in his lecture on jurisprudence. Um, his classes were extremely successful. He was extremely loved by his students. Um, he published while in Glasgow um, the Theory of Moral Sentiments, which was a huge success. Uh, his, uh, it was extremely well received, and um, um, so he, he became an intellectual um, star um, through the publication of, uh, of the Theory of Moral Sentiments. And he became so well-known and so admired that uh, one of the local noblemen decided to hire him as a private tutor for uh, his own son, and uh, which was typical of the time. So aristocrats would not go to university and mix with, uh, with regular people. They would be educated at home um, with private tutors, and then when they came of age, they would engage in a few years tour in Europe. That's called the Grand Tour of Europe, um, which was typical again of uh, the aristocrats of the time. And so Smith was was hired to be the private tutor of uh, this local aristocrat and to take the, um, the boy on a Grand Tour of Europe, which was what Ms. Smith did. So they, they went to Europe, they went to France, um, where eventually they, they met some of the physiocrats, which were um, the economists of France. Um, so if you think of the terms laissez-faire, actually comes from them, uh, even though they were more focused on uh, the importance of agriculture as opposed to uh, manufacturing. And... Uh, so in France, uh, before actually he, he was able to meet um, with, uh, with the physiocrats, he was bored. He wrote home saying, I'm bored. I don't know what to do because we are waiting here. And uh, so to pass the time, I start to write a book. And it turns out that the book that he was starting to write was The Wealth of Nations. So The Wealth of Nations, yeah. in a sense, started out of boredom <laughs> while in France. <laughs> Um, of course, he had a lot of thought of, about the content even before, as I mentioned, in lecture jurisprudence, there is a lot of content that actually went into the Western nations. Uh, but nevertheless, the tour had to be cut short because of the death in the family of, um, um, of the boy that he was accompanying. And so when he went back, uh, he went back to Scotland and he went home and lived with his mom. Um, and he eventually finished the Wealth of Nations and he started to work uh, at uh, the Custom House in Edinburgh, uh, where he stayed until, uh, until he died. And uh, the Wealth of Nations made him like uh, even more famous than, than he was before. Again. So you can think of like an intellectual rock star at the time. Um, and he had... Uh, um, a very active social life uh, in the sense that he belonged to several, uh, they call them clubs. Um, 
which are like groups of people that would meet regularly to talk about current issues. So again, like intellectual um, bubbling um, group that I mentioned before was very much part of Smith's life. Um, so um, he, he belonged to many groups that would meet regularly, either uh, weekly, bi-weekly or monthly um, over dinner to discuss uh, topics of relevance. Um, he had a very large house, uh, given that he, uh, he, he didn't have a, a family of his own, he was not married or had children. Um, because he entertained a lot, uh, again, a lot of people would come in and out of his home um, because, in part, because they wanted to meet him, but also uh, because of uh, these this circles, these clubs that he was, uh, I was engaged with. Um, and yeah, and then he died in, uh, in 1790. Um, he, um, and again, if you think of the dates of his life, there are a couple of dates that are uh, of relevance, I think. So the West of Nations was published in 1776, in March 1776, um, which if you are on this side of the Atlantic, 1776 is also a date that is uh, quite renowned for other reasons, uh, given the, the independence or the war of independence of the colonies, the North American colonies. And... Uh, um, and he died in uh, um, 1790, which is uh, basically at the beginning of the French Revolution, which may have had an effect on uh, the reception of him after his death. Right. So, so we have a very interesting time and a very interesting intellectual climate. We have a very, very interesting person who, who's writing in this time. We didn't even talk about some specific points of wealth and nations yet, but I hope everyone listening realize just all that detail in and of itself makes it worth the read if you think about the context that someone starts their inquiry into. And that's actually going to be my next question for you now that we, we shift gears a little bit here. So you, you noted in your essay, having said everything we just talked about, that people often forget that the, the full title of The Wealth of Nations is, is in fact an inquiry into the nature and causes of the wealth of nations. Given everything we just talked about, why is the fact that this is an inquiry so important to understand to you? Like, why do you latch onto this and think like, you know, we should stop there and think about this? In, so I think I mentioned, I mentioned before, um, the time in which he lived, uh, the Scottish Enlightenment was a time of uh, major intellectual uh, curiosity and major intellectual developments in all disciplines. And so the ability and the will to questioning uh, yourself, your knowledge, the knowledge of others was fundamental. And so the the will to understand and the humility that you may have to realize that your knowledge may not be the final knowledge. Um, right. I think is part of the reason why he titled the wealth of nations an inquiry um, and not principles, for example. Right, right. Um, the complexity of human 
uh, of human nature and of human interactions and of social institutions was Smith was quite aware of that complexity and the challenges that one has to offer explanations for complex systems and, and institutions that uh, to use the famous phrase of uh, one of his uh, friends and contemporaries um, are the result of human action but not of human design uh, is a is a is a realization of the fact that there are comp- there are complex situations and complex uh, institutions that are bigger than us and bigger than our understanding. And what we can do is try to explain them, but it's not necessarily the case that we get it right. And the danger to think that you got them right is to impose your view um, and, as a consequence, your policies on other people. And so in uh, the theory of moral sentiments, which is the first book that I mentioned, um, it has uh, um, some comments about a man of system, which is somebody who has a very specific vision of the world and hopes to accommodate the actual world to the vision that he has of the world. But if the two do not match, so if the word actually does not move in exactly the same way as uh, the the ideal, then you may have you may have problem if you try to push uh, uh, the word into the direction of an idea that does not fit. So I think that that humility is is present in the title. Yes, for sure. And, and, and on that exact note, uh, on the line of the note that it's an inquiry, you note that at the end of the day, The Wealth of Nations is not a book about policy prescriptions, for instance, or as you just said now, principles. You say that The Wealth of Nations is a book about ideas, is a book about big ideas, and as such, and I think here's the key, it asks questions, and you said big questions. And I think that seems to be to you one of the keys to understanding The Wealth of Nations, is you're really dealing with a set of big questions, not big answers necessarily. Of course, they may lead to some answers, but ultimately his starting point is a series of big questions, it seems to you. So um, before he died, um, Smith asked to burn everything that he had written um, that was not polished enough for him um, to be passed to, uh, to, to the future. One of the essays that he spared the flames was uh, an essay that seems to have written, at least to start, uh, he started uh, to work on it when he was in Oxford. Um, and is, uh, um, is, a, is, a, is called The History of Astronomy. It's a longer title, but it's, uh, it's known as The History of Astronomy, which is not about the history of astronomy. The history of astronomy is an example that he uses to explain um, the development or the, the development of knowledge, basically, and of science. And so he tells us that we are uncomfortable to see phenomena that um, we cannot explain. So we seek explanations, and the way in which we seek explanation is by trying to connect things in a way that makes sense to us. And then if something else shows up that doesn't fit our 
pattern of understanding, we try to fit it in somehow. And uh, and so and that's how he explains like the, the, the emergence of astronomy. Right? So we look at the sky and we think, oh, there's some movement in it, but we don't move, so we must be that the skies are moving, but they cannot move by themselves because they're because things don't move by themselves, so they must be carried by gods. Uh, or and um, and then you see that there are certain things that don't fit, and so what do you do with it? Again, you try either to fit it in, but when it doesn't fit, then you have to make up a different story. And that's how the different theories of the skies have uh, developed over time. And uh, so he tells us that a philosopher, or in this case, the astronomer, a philosopher for him is somebody who um, who studies, uh, you know, who is interested in knowledge in general. So a philosopher, um, a philosopher's job is to connect the dots. So we have this, um, um, scatter amount, scatter information, and what a philosopher does is trying to make sense of it in a way that calms us down, that, that decreases our anxiety. And so you're basically connecting dots. And again, when the when a dot doesn't fit, you try to fit it. And if it if it, if you by studying more, you realize that some observations. Were, were incorrect or imprecise or there's more to it than, than you expected, um, you adjust your story and eventually you change your story. And, and so I think that what he's doing in the West Nation is offering um, the similar approach of where he's, he's a philosopher who's connecting dots, who's offering explanations with the awareness that uh, there have been different ways of connecting dots before um, that uh, may have worked for some time, uh, but then we realize that, no, that doesn't quite fit. Um, and, and with the awareness also, I think that things may change in the future when we learn more and when we discover dots that did not fit anymore in that plan. Right. And I think that's actually a good place to take our break before we jump into some more questions. So we're going to do that right now. Everyone, you're listening to The Curious Task. I'm speaking with Maria Pia Paganelli today. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. Feel free to send questions, feedback, guest recommendations, or anything else that's on your mind to curioustask at liberalstudies.ca. As always, a huge thanks to our supporters on Patreon, including Travis Smith, Vincent Geloso, and Alessandro Fiorello. Remember to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at The Curious Task, and rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you're listening to The Curious Task. Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to The Curious Task. I'm speaking with Maria Pia Paganelli today. So, Maria, I think the first half was great. We talked about the historical context for Smith. We talked about Smith himself for some context, and we talked about Wealth of Na- Nations as, as an inquiry and talked about the value of, of big questions. And one thing I want to follow up on with, on with real quick is that s- since these are big questions, it seems that you really think there's value in pointing out that not only were these big questions the way they were framed relevant for the time period, but that they also have, in a way, timeless value. That is to say that these are still questions that are relevant today to some degree. 
because of the kind of question that I think um, Smith was asking, those questions will always be asked. Um, I don't think that there is an answer that's okay, that's it. Um, and in particular, one thing in, that I worked on on that particular paper was trying to see or to bring to light that Smith was asking how do we become rich and why it matters. Um, and if you think in terms of the, the, the flip side of it, um, do you want to be poor? Um, is, is poverty a good thing? Um, then that question, or, or how can we avoid all the problems that may emerge from, from poverty? Those are problems that we're still facing today. Uh, they faced in the past, and my guess is that we will still face in the future. And for Smith, the problem was uh, was not necessarily just a material problem. It was a combination of material and moral problem. For what, what again, like we're dealing with the 18th century, right? So this is pre-industrial revolution. Um, medical uh, knowledge was starting to develop, um, but you had a, a child mortality or infant mortality that was still stunning at the time. Um, so he describes a woman uh, in the highland of Scotland, which is a, the, a very poor part of Scotland at the time, delivering 20 children, and only a couple of them will survive. Right. This is an astonishing situation in which you have death caused by poverty, caused by lack of resources that surrounds you and shapes your life and your thinking. And for Smith, that is, is a horrible thing because it is possible to avoid having more than half of your children dead. Um, it is possible, according to Smith, to have people, uh, to have your children survive, to have them well, and to have them flourishing. And, but not everywhere and not always. And so he's asking, under what condition can we live? And under what condition can we live well? Uh, and, the, and not just materially, but also um, morally and emotionally. So under what condition can we become uh, a complete human being? And so I think that the, the, the way in which he, he looks at the problem is, uh, um, so wealth becomes instrumental to the flourishing of human beings. It's not that we want wealth for the sake of wealth. We want wealth because wealth allows us to have medical care for our children, allows us to take care of our elderly and not let them even die. Um, it, it allows us to um, make sure that we develop mentally and morally in a way that uh, is close to our, um, to our nature. Right, and those I, I think are, are, th are problems that we, we will always face. Um, the problems that they faced in antiquity, they and in every place in the world are are a problem that that we are still looking at. 
Absolutely. And and just to actually dig into the point you're just making a little deeper here, you you frame this in, in your essay in a way that I really enjoyed. You said that, you know, you talked about wealth for the sake of wealth and so on and so forth. So at the end of the day, you you noted that, you know, Smith's big questions, as we were talking about, are appealing, not because, you know, they deal with just technical or just moral dimensions. You say he finds this interesting way of actually balancing and, and asking big questions that involve both the technical, economic and the moral dimensions. So I, I think that's fascinating. And I think that's clear kind of in, in what you were saying, too, you know, whether it's not wealth for the sake of wealth or he's not just inquiring for the sake of inquiring. He's he's also, you know, a liberal in some in many senses of, of especially what it meant at that time. So this idea that he has both the technical and moral dimensions tied up in his big questions, I, I find very fascinating. Clearly, you did too because you called attention to that in the essay. And it's something that sometimes is forgotten today, um, especially within mm-hmm. economics. Economics is a very technical discipline, um, and. Uh, and is for a century or so wanted to separate itself from anything that was not technical. And uh, now I think uh, some economists are starting to realize that maybe that was not the best, <laughs> um, <laughs> the best direction to take. But again, like we learn from our mistakes, hopefully. Um, but nevertheless, like the, the and I'm not denying the importance of of technical economics. To the contrary. It has to be complemented with uh, other aspects of, uh, of of human being. So, in a sense, you can think of um, Adam Smith tells us that division of labor um, and specialization is uh, the base of prosperity, which is um, which is possible because we trade. So it's not the specialization uh, by itself, it's specialization and trade that allows us to prosper. And that, I think, should take place also in knowledge. Um, so the technicality of economics by itself um, may not lead to much. Um, but if if we, if we can trade with uh, other disciplines, uh, as, it, as it was in the time of Smith, and I think that we may have the same kind of prosperity, uh, intellectual prosperity as well. For sure. And and as far as sort of those technical and moral questions, another thing you pointed out that I enjoyed was that, you know, especially as, as far as justice is concerned, it seems that it's interesting to note that, as we said, Smith is concerned about what it makes nations rich and poor, but that in his inquiry and in his idea, um, there, there's a heavy correlation between the conditions of, of a poor nation with the kind of regime that they live under whether they're free or not, and and the kind of conditions that he views the richer nations living under. You know, for, for example, he would talk about how you know masses that were basically miserable and and uh, and and poor under a system of feudalism, for example, or, or 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 absolute monarchy. So here again, I think is an area where you you can't decouple the the two perspectives that he's actually bringing to the table, and and it's interesting that he correlates the rich nations with a certain climate um, of, of freedom and the poor nations with not. I think the, you may be careful how you want to think about freedom. Um, so I think that you, you, you could say that Smith, um, we can read Smith as offering two, society, two, two visions of society in which there is freedom. Um, one is... Um, 
a society of uh, uh, hunter-gatherers, a society of hunters in this way. And the other one is a commercial society. So society of hunters, uh, it, it, people are um, free in the sense that there is a lot of equality among them, mostly because um, they have nothing. Um, so for him, hunters are, um, or hunting societies, um, are societies in which um, you basically are able to survive by what you hunt, which means not much, um, because you you have to you, you have to hunt. You you kill the animal. You eat the animal. But there's nothing left. Like the animal, you cannot store. Um, you cannot accumulate uh, a dead animal, like because it rots. And so there is no way of this, no particular way in which one can distinguish each other uh, from from each other, because you don't have accumulation of property. You don't have property, uh, or at least uh, the kind of property that you have cannot be accumulated. So in that particular situation, um, you have no government, uh, you have no formal legal, institutional legal system. Um, you do have rules, don't take me wrong, like you have law, laws, but not courts, like we, we would have uh, specialized judges. Right. Um, but you, um, and so in a sense, you may have this, uh, egalitarian societies in which everybody is equally poor and equally miserable. Um, and it's only with the development of property, um, so with the next, uh, or with a different kind of society in which um, uh, um, you, rather than hunting animals, you actually um, grow animals. So the, the pastoral societies in those societies, you start to develop property um, because you can actually store property without it going bad. So you can accumulate it over time, and that's how you start to distinguish uh, from each other. So the person who has more um, uh, sheep or uh, a larger flock of, of animal uh, is going to become more prominent in the society. Um, and in those kind of societies, you start to develop uh, hierarchies. And so freedom may start to, uh, to be um, more on a more shaky ground. So you start to develop slavery. Uh, there is more distinction between men and women. Uh, of course, there's subordination on the side of the women. Um, so with the development of property, you start to lose some freedom, uh, which um, is also present in agricultural society to, to, in a sense, to a higher extent. Um, and agricultural societies, according to Smith, so you can think of like feudal societies as an example of it, um, you, you have... Uh, very large discrepancy of wealth. So you have um, landlords uh, who are 
very large who, who have who have very large properties and they have dependents uh, so the dependents are the the people who work for them and are protected by them um, and because of the protection that they receive and the work that they receive um, as me says they are dependent on the landlord which means that they are not right. free um and uh the it is only with the event of commerce that you can break that dependency uh which can in, the, in its extreme is a form of enslavement uh so he calls some of the workers uh, some of the farmers slaves uh in medieval time um so it's only with the event of commerce that you can break that dependency uh that hierarchy and so now rather than having one master he says you can have a thousand masters and having a thousand masters is much better than having only one master because if one master is bad you're sort of stuck um but if you have a thousand masters if one is bad you say well okay no not 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 a big deal i have still another 999 uh masters too um that can help me can help me uh provide for me and my family so yes commerce is going to bring a different kind of freedom uh which is a, an independence uh meaning that you do not depend um in any formal way from anybody else um you there is interdependence that's for sure um but that kind of uh independence is uh is a uh, independence that brings people to the same level that gives everybody the same dignity uh as opposed to instead having a hierarchical uh situation um the other good thing that smith tells us about uh the advent of commerce is that um because of the necess- necessities of trade you develop institutions uh that favor trade so you start to develop uh contract law you start to develop uh uh courts like formal legal institutions that support uh the 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 trading activities and those are again commerce uh will favor those kind of institution that favor freedom um because it is through freedom that you can further develop commerce and at this point of our conversation i want to shift gears to another larger question i had but before before i talk about um a, a couple other things i just want to know what what What's your favorite big question that the Wealth of Nation asks, or, or what general topic do, does he cover? And it's fair if you say all of it, but is, is there one that sticks out in your mind where you think that that's a big question that has you know been left with me from Smith, and I still think of it to this day? Do, do you have a favorite big question that Adam Smith asks that still you ponder on? I I think I mentioned it um, earlier. I'm going to develop it a little bit more with. Uh, uh, with one image that me offers so in his introduction to the west of nations it tells us there are society that are so miserably poor that um where people think that they are forced to 
abandoned their children, their elderly, and their sick uh, to be devoured by wild beasts. That to me is one of the most powerful images uh, that you can think of um, because it's not simply telling us, well, you expose children. It's like your child, you are going to leave your child on the side of the road to be devoured by a wild beast. You're going to leave your elderly parents to be devoured by a beast is an awful image. Mm-hmm. And, and I think, and Smith is asking, how can we avoid that? What kind of institutions allows us to let children live, to let our sick live, to let our elderly live, and to live with dignity? That to me is, is, is like the, the, the core that drives my interest in the West of Nations. Excellent. I think that makes a lot of sense. And that, that is very interesting. And I think it ties in nicely to one of the things I wanted to, to round up on, which is we've talked about a lot in this conversation, but uh, you know, we talked about the big questions in the book, but I want to zoom out a little further. When we look at the wealth of nations as a whole, it seems like all of the things we've talked about add up to at least your conclusion that the book indeed itself is timeless in and of itself as a whole. And I like in, in your essay as well, you said you were talking to a historian of economics that called your attention to the fact that there's a few of the several characteristics of a classic that, uh, that the wealth of nations definitely covers. Um, you know, for instance, he, he, uh, noted that, you know, rereading it offers as much of a sense of discovery as the first read the, you know, the book has never exhausted all it, all it has to say to its readers. Um, sounds like you agree with those two things for sure to start at least i think that that's what i'm getting from this conversation so i think you you wouldn't have a problem charting it as a, a classic at least for, for for those two factors right um i i've read it several times and the more i read the more i like it um so i spent the last few years now um, working on it i i i published recently uh the Routledge Guidebook to the Wealth of Nations. And to prepare it, I had to read and reread cover to cover the book and study it in a way that I've never done before, just because I had to force myself to understand the material enough to be able to explain it to somebody, which is not easy. And as much as I hated doing it at the time, because there are parts that are quite challenging, um, it actually gave me an appreciation of the book that I didn't have before. Um, right. And so, yes, I think it is a classic and you can read it over and over again and find more things of interest. I think the more you read it, the more interesting it becomes. So had you asked right. me um, five years ago or six years, seven years ago, What's your favorite book, Wealth of Nations or Theory of Moral Sentiments? I would have answered then, Theory of Moral Sentiments. Today, I would say the Wealth of Nations. Oh, that's very interesting. <laughs> I, I don't hear people often often switch that. Mm-hmm. Like Usually, there's a type of person that sticks with one, and they're like, I like Adam Smith, but mm-hmm. I'm more of a Wealth of Nations or Theory of Moral mm-hmm. Sentiments person. It's interesting to hear you had a switch there. And I switch again because I, I studied it uh, 
much more and much more in depth. Right. That makes a lot of sense. <laughs> and, and, and one characteristic I left to the end, which you did include in your essay, but I think it deserves to be separated out, that a classic might be defined as any book which comes to represent the whole universe. That, that's, a, that's a mighty claim. Can you, can you t- tell our <laughs> listeners what, what, what that means and, and if you agree with that? Because I found it, when I first read that, I said, what the heck? And then when you explained it, it's like, that makes, I really like the, the thought behind that. So, so what does it mean if, if we do believe that the Wealth of Nations comes to represent the whole universe and that it's on par with the, the ancient talismans? What do, we, <laughs> what, what, what do you think on that note? Uh, honestly, I just like the sound of it. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Because <laughs> uh, it puzzled me when I read it. It's like Calvino's uh, this definition of our classic. And I was like, what? And but it was like, well, it's so majestic that I really liked it. And so I figured out, oh, I'll just put it in because it's, it's, it's majestic. But then I actually thought about it with, with more care. And uh, and, and again, I think there is something to it in the Wealth of Nations. It does represent at least a human universe, um, not necessarily the, the physical universe. Um, but again, if, if you think of what are the things that are of interest to us, us as human beings, um, it's like, well, we want to live and possibly to live well. And so under what condition is that possible? And I think that that is a universal question. It does represent the universe. Um, and again, Smith offers one answer. We may have different answer depending on to, to whom you ask that question. But Smith's answer is like, well, like material condition, like wealth, which commerce brings, and all the commons can bring, is going to facilitate our life, uh, is going to facilitate our good life. Right. I have, I have one final question before we move to the, the formal wrap up. And, and, and it's the following, you know, we, we both know that there's a lot of great work happening in, ma- in many different fields right now, particularly in, particularly in economics and philosophy, for example. Um, and, and some of that stuff might deal with some big questions, maybe some medium-sized questions. Other might be others might be very technical, um, but provide great answers. But it, it's safe to say that a lot of this work, um, you know, is is ultimately ne- doomed to never be a classic, right? I mean, outside of a, in some cases, and I'm not. This isn't to say it's not important, but just it's the fact. In some cases, some work might just be viewed by the specialists in that field or others that review it, and so on and so forth. Why do you think that's the case for some great work that's happening today? That you know, it, it won't be. It's doomed to not become a classic, but that the wealth of nations did become a classic. I know we can't compare the work directly. That's not the meaning of the question. But there's clearly something about the wealth of nations as a work that makes it different than, for example, ninety nine point nine percent of the other work out there. We only have a, a a certain amount of classics ultimately. So what puts it in that category other than the things we talked about for you? Um, I don't know. Uh, I would say probably luck plays a role. Fair um, enough. Yeah. The fact it was uh, written in English in a time in which um, Britain was the center of uh, the modern uh, universe because of the empire. Um, and then with the U.S. sort of moving the center, but it's still an English-speaking country. 
Um, so I think that played played a role. Um, on a more philosophical ground, I think in the paper I mentioned um, this artist in the, a rural part of Brazil, who his name is Ulysses, and he he had. Uh, it struck me because for the first time I've seen a woman across. Uh, and so I asked him, why do you have a woman across? Because usually is there's no women across, it's always a man. And he said, because I want to represent the poverty and the suffering of the poverty that I see here uh, as a part of the world that is forgotten. Uh, and people suffer because of their poverty. Uh, and the woman had a little, um, a little angel next to her, which is her dead child. Uh, and I think that it struck me because it was like, you're asking, you're seeing the same problem that Anna Smith sees. And you don't even know who Anna Smith is. You're just right. representing like a suffering that you're seeing. And you're not offering any necessarily any explanation. You're just realizing that there is a problem. And I think Smith did exactly the same, in a different format, in a different with different means. Uh, but they saw, I think, the same problem. And I think it's a problem that you see, uh, or that people see everywhere, and they may just be expressed in different ways. And maybe Ulysses it just happened to be in a rural part of Brazil, and so he can't it's more difficult for him to become world-renowned. But um, Adam Smith, again, being part of the British, a subject of the British Empire, uh, had a higher chances or a bigger chance to, to become mm-hmm. well-known. That makes a lot of sense. And, and with that, our time has pretty much wound down here, so I'm going to move us to our formal wrap-up. Maria, I had a very good conversation with you today. I hope you enjoyed it too. I think you know we've talked about a lot in each episode, I want to make sure that the guest ultimately has the last word. So if we pull the conversation full circle to put a finer point on everything, let me officially ask you what, what is ultimately the last question here. So what do you hope are the main takeaways for someone listening to you here on why they should read The Wealth of Nations? In other words, if you want to leave someone with one or two or just a handful of takeaways, if anything, from this conversation, what would that be? It's an inquiry. So be curious. <laughs> that's what I, what I think. Like that's what Smith is teaching me. It's like learn to be curious, ask questions, and don't think that your answers are always right. That's excellent. <laughs> I think that's a great way to leave it off. Maria, thank you very much for joining me on the Curious Task today. Thank you. It's been a great pleasure. This episode of The Curious Task was produced by Alex Aragona and Sabine L. Chidiak. Our executive producer is Matt Bufton. The music you heard on today's episode was created by Lindy Voppenfjord. You should check out his other stuff online. The Curious Task exists today because of donations of time and money from those creating it and listeners like yourself. Check us out on Patreon and find out how you can support us and get access to exclusive offers. I'm Alex Aragona. Thank you very much for joining us on The Curious Task. <laughs>